You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to The Buzz, brought to you by the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic, and today we're buzzing into episode 196, and like we've been doing, I don't know, the last year and change now, as once we got to a point where we had follow-up to talk about, <laughs> before we get into the, native, like the really good native plant stuff, we're going to do some uh, follow-up on some of the stuff that's been going on in our world lately. So, yeah, Which has yeah. been... Trade shows and conferences, yes, for the and, most part. Uh, a whole lot of them. And um, so for me, I was well. We're both busy. You were in Atlantic City. Yeah, I um, wasn't at either of the two that you listed. I was yeah. at the New Jersey American Society of Landscape Architects. Is that what that stands for? Yes. ASLA. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, then I was at uh, a thing called Planorama that is put on by Metro Hort at the Brooklyn Botanical Garden. Which um, this is my second year going to it, and it's like one by far my favorite event of the year. I have yet to been there. I'm, I'm so jealous. Yeah, or, it's. I have um, yet to be there. I should say. Yeah, it's there. just a really cool. Uh, from from a like business standpoint, you're having really positive and like uh, just just uh, hopeful conversations from the moment you set up your booth till the moment it closes. There's no break. Like you can barely even get uh, a bite or two of lunch in just because it's constant conversations with really, really cool projects. Like I'm talking about things like uh, like some things with New York City parks. Uh, there's the High Line, which was an old railway that they converted into um, a walking path that's full of native plants. Um, restoration projects that are all across New York City. It's and it's so it's not only is it really interesting. Uh, people and and projects it's just like a really unique location where all these plants are going and their uses are a little bit more varied than your your normal restoration project and so they, and they have speakers as well you were yeah, a speaker yeah, you so were on a panel there they have uh all speakers which last year when i went i didn't get to go to any of the presentations <laughs> because i had too much else going on uh just talking to people at our trade show booth uh, but this year's on a panel which was um it's kind of like the next generation in horticulture, which uh, my brother and I are at our nursery. But I was on with a, a guy, Carl Hesseline, who has a nursery not far from us, who I guess he's the second generation at that nursery. because, But his parents had Princeton nurseries where Fran used to work. Yes. Actually, uh, his dad, Richard, was... Was your boss or was he? No, he was not, before he me. But Heidi, Heidi still worked at Princeton mm-hmm. at, with her sister Louise when, yeah. when I started there. So yeah. we had worked together. So um, they had the strong lineage there. Where uh, he's so he's the fifth generation being in a nursery on his mom's side, yeah. and then his dad originally was from California, and they had a, a nursery and garden center out in California, and he was also so he's also the fifth generation. A uh, person working in a nursery on his dad's side That's too. Pretty wild. Now, their nursery that they had now, his parents started. Um, I think it was like late nineties, early two thousands, something like that. I, I was gonna say, 
they already had that when I started at Princeton in 1999. Mm-hmm. So probably like mid to late 90s. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, second gen nurseryman there. But and then the other two folks on the panel were cousins at a place called Emma's Garden Growers in Long Island. They had a bunch of different locations, primarily house plants and annuals. Um, but they had some interest in native plants. We talked a little bit after, but it was uh, they were both fourth generation going into their nursery. So, wow. Uh, and then there's little old me, second generation. <laughs> Bare, business has barely been open for 40 years. Right? <laughs> hey, but well, that's yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. I'm. Oh yeah. It, it started my, for me. It started with me and ending with me. Yeah. Because neither of my kids are, are yeah. following that path. But uh, yeah, and I was talking to a couple of my friends the next day, and I'm um, just looking at the signs on the back, and it's like, oh, we've been in business since like 1910, and all that and it's it is interesting seeing uh businesses have been around for a long long yeah. time which um speaking of which Fran there was a there's a, a tavern that's near us and um that's been open since like the revolutionary war probably prior called the Chesterfield Inn yes but when people come around here and they ask me like oh we want to go like and have that kind of it's like yeah. an old old timey tavern kind of yes. vibe that's where I tell them to go and um but it was. I saw a list of like the oldest operating business in New Jersey, and it wasn't on it. But really? it was, was. I thought Brad, it was older than a lot of the was other. Was Braddock's Tavern in Medford on it? I think so. Okay, I don't remember. Yeah, but there were some I, that were like. I, I wonder, mean, like some that are like 1600s that have been. Wow. I wonder if the Chesterfield because uh, it's changed owners so many times, yeah. especially just since I've been in the area, and they they they've kind of added on to it a little bit too. Yeah. So I wonder if. I and know. I think it wasn't necessarily that it's like single continuous ownership or even like, but the, that it was a business still in operation that had operated in some capacity in that location earlier. I think so. I've actually eaten at the oldest tavern in New Jersey, which is South Jersey. I think I have not. So I, I have to look it up because I don't remember the name yeah. of it. Hold on one sec. It but, would be the Barnesboro Inn. Does that sound mm. familiar? No, not okay. at all. <laughs> <It's>. <laughs> we just ate there recently, and it was a pretty cool, pretty cool place. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So that's uh, there's some nurseries that's been along for or around yeah. for a long, long time, and Pines um, Nursery. While it's been around for a while, is not one of those that's been around like at the century mark. It's still relatively yeah. young. Actually, yeah. there's a um, when you're in involved in agriculture because agriculture is like a really old pursuit. Uh, there's well, we have our New Jersey Agricultural Society, and they have a dinner, and each year they honor all the farms that hit like the next century milestone. So there's like two or three that are on there this year. But uh, but there's um, a guy, uh, Rake Sidam, who used to be the president of Farm Bureau as a I think their farms in Hillsboro area, okay. and uh, their farm has been been farmed since seventeen something. Wow, it's yeah it, in his yeah. family, like his family has farmed it since it was originally I guess eased over from the British is my wow. guess. It, they were given land by. The king. Well, um, well. In in any way, congratulations! Because yeah. not every first generation nursery gets 
to oh yeah to move along to the second generation. That so that's was, quite uh, an accomplishment in itself. The moderator in that um, that discussion had started a nursery and didn't have kids, so there and didn't have a buyer. So basically, they had to go out go out of business because they wanted to retire, and mm-hmm. and that was it. So um, it's one of those things where. I think one of the lines I used is I was really fortunate uh, that my parents had like had a nursery for me to step into, uh, but they were also kind of fortunate that they had kids that wanted to carry on the legacy. So, um, yeah, my other big big point was like I'm very fortunate that my parents decided to start a native plant nursery yeah. forty years ago because yeah. now it's like wow, this is. The hey, well, the heyday is coming, I think. Because yeah. I know, I I would imagine that you know this that right before I started working here, your parents were going to cut one of the employees in on the nursery. Did you know this? No, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. they're they're they weren't an employee by the time I started here. Mm, so that might give you an idea of, yeah. of who it might yeah, be. Yeah. I can maybe write it down. Mm. No, I didn't know that story. So okay, well that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Because I think he, maybe your parents felt that, yeah, I, that maybe that you and and Steve didn't want to continue yeah. on. In the and, well, at that, that time, yeah, we weren't. That was we weren't looking yeah. that way. So, um, yeah. So, I, but the there was some folks that I oh I shouldn't say some. There's a lot of folks I recognize there that either came up to me and told me they listened to the podcast or I love or that knew us in some regard. So, thank you for everyone who stopped by. I'm gonna. Give you the real shout out later on, and then uh, then I was also at um, New Jersey's Nursery and Landscape Association has their trade show, which is called Total Pro Expo, and that was on. I was in Planorama on Tuesday. I was there on Wednesday, and that was really cool too. Uh, for a couple reasons, one, the uh, interim secretary of agriculture in New Jersey was walking around, and one of the things they discussed. I wasn't there the day he discussed it. He was there the day before I was. Um, but New Jersey passed a bill a couple years ago about a, uh, called like the Jersey natives program where it's going to be a garden center program sponsored by the department of agriculture, uh, to help provide promotional literature about native plants. Um, and so he was asking about some of our employees advice for the program and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, another really cool thing was that the New Jersey Native Plant Society, excuse me, I'm saying it backwards, Native Plant Society in New Jersey was there. <laughs> and they actually gave three talks and had really? a really well-staffed booth. They have something coming up. Um, so if you're in New Jersey, check it out, or even eastern Pennsylvania, uh, called Pollinator Day that they're working on, where they're going to have liaisons in each county that are going to go to local garden centers, with permission of the garden yeah. center, yeah. and targeting garden centers that already sell some native plants um, because one of the big, they did a big survey. One of the big complaints they found was that uh, one, most garden centers that their uh, respondents to the survey went to didn't have any native plants or they couldn't find them. And then two was once they were like, they were in a place and they were asking about native plants, the employees didn't know anything about them. So they couldn't even steer them in the right direction. Uh, kind of following up on what we said with that American yeah. Beauties yes. program where, okay, now you have something in a pot that people can recognize. It's got this national brand to it and um, and comes with it with the appropriate signage. So the employee doesn't necessarily have to be knowledgeable. They can say, 
go that way where the butterfly yeah. is. Yes. And that's yeah. kind of steers you in the right direction. And each tag and all the labeling is going to give you enough information to make an informed decision. Um, what Native Plant Society is doing is having this pollinator day where they're going to have a Native Plant Society volunteer at some of these garden centers um, on a certain day steering and answering questions and steering people towards native plants. Nice. So even nice. when I was I there, I was like, well, someone was from Morris County, and I'm like, well, where are you going to go in Morris County? And they're like, well, we don't have a place yet. I'm like, come with me. I'll, I'll introduce <laughs> you to the person you want to talk to. And uh, I did that like three or four times. Awesome. And, uh, then I felt like I was bugging them at that point. <laughs> so I stopped. But, um, yeah, so it was nice to kind of use some of that's My a great program to yeah. kind of start that bridge, but they were, yeah, they were really well received. It was cool to see them there. Um, we were, they're doing a lot of good things. They have their yeah. podcast, which actually, I guess you and I are going to be a feature guest yeah. on. Was it what the wild story? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. what it's called. So, and, um, I wrote yeah. a poem for that. Did you? I, I did. I wrote Kim a poem for it. asked if we would be interested, I said, I don't know if we're as eloquent or well-spoken as your typical guest. But because you're sure you because it it it, it, so. it focuses on nature, art, yeah. and poetry. Yeah, and I'm like, well, I feel like I gotta bring something. Yeah, to the to the table. So I, in preparation, I wrote a poem. Poetry really hasn't been my bag. It's uh, uh, well, it's not mine, but we'll see how it goes. I'm able to do uh, like rhyme and stuff. I I'm oh, I'm decent at haikus. All right, and, All right. Um, then uh, but. Iambic pentameter, not my thing. I, I don't know how how well it's constructed or how it will be received. Yeah. But I I threw my hat in the ring, so yeah. so that's something to look forward to. So if you want to hear my my bad attempt at poetry, make sure you tune in. We'll we'll give you more information. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's in it's going to air in April. I think that's what yeah, yeah they were saying. So. so all right, cool. And a uh, um, couple other things we have coming up is Bowman's Hill. Am I saying this in order? Bowman's Hill. Wildflower Preserve Wildflower Land Preserve, Ethics Symposium. Land Ethics Symposium. Which will be Thursday, February 15th. Uh, I have a, a conference tomorrow, but by the time we announce it, it will be over. Um, and we also have the ELA National Conference, which mm-hmm. is February 21st and 22nd. And I can't remember which day we're speaking on, but we're Tom and I are doing a presentation for that. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to throw uh, – that stuff up on our socials yeah. as well. So yes. you'll be able to find out since, some more information about since that. Since we're doing follow-up, you want to take a quick second to to talk about the Facebook group? Yeah, sure. Real quick. Just yeah. real quick. I know we had a, a mild situation with a disagreement in the Facebook group, which um, really hasn't happened. Like maybe yeah. some have happened, but nothing. This one was maybe a little bigger than what we've seen in the group. I just want to uh, – Give a huge shout out to Alyssa Joy Lewis for being a moderator and handling the situation. Mm-hmm. But the only advice – listen, we've all been in that situation. The one thing we always preach is kindness and patience and try to try to remember that before – You know, even if something said that maybe feels like a, an attack or uh, kind of like hits a raw nerve, just – you know, step away for a few minutes, come back. We've been really fortunate with how well the group has been, and I think it's been resolved. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, just kindness and patience, and and take take the best. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? That they had the best intent. Yeah. When when you respond, 
Yeah. I know I'm guilty. I even looked I'm, at it and I'm like, eh, this is a little saucier than, yeah. than we usually see here. But I didn't, I didn't, from what I saw, I didn't think it was a, a huge deal. No. It's compared to what you see in some of these other groups. No, it I gets, know. And it, every single post and is it's like just that. a lot more people in those groups. It's too. just shocking because we really don't see yeah. like much like this. But, you know, you figure inevitably it's going to happen. Yeah. We've had disagreements on there. I've been involved in disagreements yeah. on there. So it's how you handle yourself. And everyone, everyone's been great. And no one's pointing fingers or yep. saying, yep. you know, just, just remember, put your – your best foot forward when moving forward. I'm yeah. sure it won't be the last time. Oh yeah, that happens. Yeah, I can't imagine either. And uh, yeah, I think it was because it was the first time we saw anything like I know similar to that. Yeah, um, it had everyone's hockles. Is that the phrase? Hockles, hockles, C- cackles. cackles. Yeah, it, whatever. It had them yeah. up. I hadn't and, even uh, seen it. You know, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't until Alyssa brought it to my attention that I, I had, that I read it. I was like, yeah. oh, I had no idea this was happening. Yeah. So. But, but but I think the actual post that it happened on was really interesting because it was a national organization um, and that was uh, – and actually the, that organization in the past had did some promotion for uh, native plants and pollinator stuff, but they were promoting or giving away in, an invasive plant at this event uh, linked to a high school. Yeah. And, um, and the author – of the post was saying with, uh, with their, uh, child was at the school and she was like, well, I kind of want to write a letter to their organization saying, Hey, that's maybe not quite right. Yeah. And, uh, strong, I'm sure more strongly worded letters have been written over less. You look at the, the Cheerio honeybee <laughs> thing from years ago, <laughs> yes. the honey nut Cheerios. And they were like, they weren't, they were trying to do the right thing. And they were now they were, didn't do enough research and yes. we're going to send, the wrong kind of seed mixes all over the country, but um, that, that's very common. I just yeah. got a seed packet the other day, and um, it's one of those. The packet itself, I think, it it was called like the native, like the native bee seed mix, which I first took as like, oh, this is a good seed, like it's a good seed mix of native plants. Yeah, and I think they might have pulled over some like grammar on me. <laughs> because it's technically, like, I looked at the back right away, and I did not tell the people who give, gave me the seed make, uh, the seed packet because they were not the ones who made it. They were just promoting this company because they were from Utah, and I was in Utah. And uh, and I look at the back, and it's, like, Chinese this and, oh, and uh, Japanese this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, these aren't native plants. And then I'm like, I wonder if they're trying to do it as, like, it's for native bees and it's a seed mix. Which still not yeah. quite the right effect, but um, it, yeah. it's all good intentions that yep. just kind of fall. Lot, a yeah, a lot short. of non-natives in there. Yeah. I don't know if they're actually. I'm not like an expert on Utah native plants, yeah, but either am I. There wasn't anything that really struck me as being like, "Oh, that's definitely native here. That's like a good plant for this area." There's a lot that were like, "I don't know about that one." <laughs> I I don't know. Did I, I said it on our last episode? But that was. I think that's really common. A lot of people just don't know what native plants are. They don't know the definition. And I was given, as a gift, I was given a plant that was described as native, and I hadn't heard of it, but I'm like, I'm not going to be rude and say no. I'm going to take it. I'm going to look it up when I get home, and then found out it wasn't a native plant. So um, that one's sitting in our greenhouse while I try and figure out where is it going to go. Yeah, that's 
when when you told me they said it was native, I'm like, I could be wrong. Yeah, I don't think it that's is. what I was yeah. like when he when he was describing it as a native plant. I'm like, I don't know about that. I feel like I would know this plant if it was a native. plant. It'd probably be worthwhile to reach out and just say, I know yeah. you told me this. Yeah. Maybe t- it's it's really not. I probably will because the guy's a really good guy. Yeah, and just and, say, uh, just I'd hate to see someone call you out on it. Yeah, you know, yep. just just probably got the bad information. Listen, we've all. I, I've done it. I've I've put out videos and then had people go, uh, what you just said there isn't accurate. Yeah. And then I look yeah. and I'm like, oh, it's not accurate. How did I not see that? And I've had those – I've done, been on both ends, but I've been on the correction end too. And uh, I've had them go over really well. They're like, oh, my God, thank you. I I really feel terrible that I made a, a fool of myself. And then I have other people like curse me out and be like, "I can't believe you're doing this!" Like, I wow, how could you challenge my my knowledge? And yeah, uh, it happens. I did. I I think I told you at the time, but I even had one where um, there was a a landscape architecture plan in our town. And I was asked to take a look at it because they were claiming it was all in all native plants, and um. And they had me take a look at it, and it was like maybe thirty percent was native. Wow. And uh, but the I, I heard the presentation; the person was claiming it was all native, and so I sent that architect a letter saying, "Hey, I someone asked me to take a look at this because it's happening in our town. Just so you know, you said it was like ninety five percent native, yeah. and it's like thirty percent native. And then of that thirty percent, most of them are native cultivars. Yeah. So." Technically, like, yeah, you're, it's, it's definitely not local ecotype native like you're trying to say it is, yeah. and um, and didn't hear back for a couple of days, and I was, and basically I said at the next, I was asked to say this information yeah. at the next like land use board meeting, and um, I never heard back. I sent it like a day or two before the meeting, and uh, then at the meeting I did it, and I got like a really scathing email back like the day after that I yeah, and I'm like well. It, I wasn't you told wrong. The, no, was, you told the truth. Yeah. I mean, that's the truth shall set yeah. ye free. Yeah. And I didn't do it in a rude way. No. I was just, I was very polite about it. But yeah. yeah, it was interesting. It's just amazing what people think is native. And that's oh, something yeah. that we talk about yeah. all the time, just even within the industry. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't always get an agreement of what yeah. is native. Yeah. But yeah. it's a. Uh, those I remember looking at that list with you, and those definitely were not native. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a it's a that's a larger discussion. Yeah, because there's even outside of the or like outside of the native plant people, the native plant people can't agree on what's native yeah. a lot of times too. But at least we have like a more refined definition yes. where we know it's in this little circle. Yeah, but then you get people outside of the native plant world who are like, well, that's <laughs> their circle is like maybe ten times as big. Yeah. Of what they're trying to boil down and say, well, what's actually native in this circle? Well, this is a tree that it's been here for three hundred years. Is it native now? <laughs> they they really what really stumps a lot of people in my experience, from my point of view as well, is that the concept of native being like colonization. Yeah, being like, well, that people moved plants before, and I'm like, yeah, but the the clock really turned up when during European colonization yeah. of of North America because native Americans were moving plants and there are plants. I'm sure they took with them over the land bridge yeah. from Asia yeah. into yeah. North America, but it took thousands of years <laughs> for that yes. to happen. And now you have plants moving in the matter of years 
to months or months to years. And today you have plants that are moving within like in, in hours yeah. uh, physically, like the seed is moving within hours or even the physical plants. So it's, um, yeah, there's a lot of, like they get hung up on that cause they just can't picture the time span, uh, yeah. of things. So, yeah. I actually had someone bring that up to me at the New Jersey ASLA. They're like, you, you're trying to tell me that you don't think that people brought plants over the Bering Land Bridge? I'm like, I didn't say that. Yeah. I didn't say that at all. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure Yeah, I'm sure it probably happened, but how long ago? Mm-hmm. It was definitely pre-colonization. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It was uh, – yeah. And even then, it's – the process was – accelerated so rapidly like it to the factor of at least a hundred if not a thousand yeah so yeah that's uh it's speed speed is the name of the game when it comes to well yeah. a portion well, of the native you could plant even definition. look at it you could even look at it this way if if you go back was western united states part of asia at some point where they connected there I don't know. What what did Pangea look like? I, I thought remember. it went the other way. Did it go the other way? Yeah. All I right. think they were at like opposite ends of Pangea. Right. Now we're really like talking about things. <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah, they were, Something I know but nothing about. I think about. they're approaching each other over time. All right. Right? I don't, uh, I don't know. But the, yeah, there's – you go down like the little video rabbit holes and you see that there's a new ocean forming yeah, it in went, Africa. Yeah, it went the other way. Yeah. yeah, it went the other way. Okay. Yeah. So they're, right, they mind. were one day – Collide and form uh, a giant mountain chain. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No. It was. Uh, it it was definitely the other way. Okay. Cool. Should we Should we talk about plants? Plants. Plant. Native plants specifically. <laughs> would you like to go first? Uh, yeah. Like- sure. All right. Uh, my plant this week. I don't is, know this one, so I'm I'm interested. Is and I'm a couple weeks removed from seeing it now but it's uh the utah juniper or juniperus osteoperma uh and uh little information i got from uh actually the native uh, not native plant society national park service <laughs> of another nps um about this plant is that junipers grow in some of the most inhospitable landscapes imaginable thriving in an environment of baking heat bone chilling cold intense sunlight little water and fierce winds Often they appear to grow straight out of the solid rock. On the Colorado Plateau, the juniper, along with the pinyon pine, forms the most prevalent plant community, the pinyon juniper woodland, between 4,500 and 7,000 feet above sea level. The juniper can withstand drought conditions that often kill other plants and trees. Its hidden secret, a massive underground root system, which can account for two-thirds of a tree's total mass. A juniper's taproot can penetrate 25 feet straight down in search of water. It can send out lateral roots 100 feet or more, from the tree, the roots are especially hardy, even when knocked over by wind. Junipers can often continue to grow. Um, I really thought this tree was cool because there's some that are like super tiny, which uh, they said basically said the tree won't get over. Further on in this uh, the that website, the trees won't get over five feet typically until they're like over fifty years old. Really? So because it's all all they're like really scrubby and like. They fit the the climate. Yeah. If you were to plant one around here, I don't know even know who would live, but you, people would be like, "That's a really ugly tree." But it has like that gnarled, like bonsai kind of look, like like a big bonsai type thing, and it's like just twisted and crooked, and the bark looks like it's barely there. If it didn't have 
like the the foliage on it. I don't know if you call that foliage for that kind of tree. But if you didn't have the green parts yeah. uh, and it was just the bark, it would look like a gnarly piece of driftwood that had been, like, baked by the sun and smashed by the waves. But it's – um, it kind of reminded me, like, how white bark pines look, just, like, little mini like, – yeah. with that, like, really, like, tough-looking, just abused-looking trees. I wonder if it – like, if you planted it here, like, it wouldn't root well enough and it would blow no over. Clue. Like, I'm wondering yeah. – like, because if it doesn't have to search for water, it would be so shallow-rooted. Yeah, that maybe it would blow over. But there was one in particular, and we saw him. And I'm, I didn't look this up, but I'm just from an observational standpoint, I'm 95 percent sure that dioecious because you had some that had berries and then some that didn't. Okay, like our our like eastern Juniper red cedar, Juniper yeah. virginiana. Um, and the berries looked very similar. Maybe they were a little bit bigger on these, but uh, there was one uh, plant in particular. That was like maybe two feet tall. It was tiny, and then there and I'm I did I want to take a closer look, but I was also like it was, the sun was going down. We were trying to do like a one sunset hike, and we're rushing. And there was this giant root that like went across the trail, that was probably I don't know six inches in diameter. The tree itself was like three feet tall, and or maybe not even. And like the diameter of the the trunk might have been like three inches. <laughs> And there's just, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure that root is coming out of that because wow. it kind of like went under and like looked like it came from it. And there wasn't another tree close by that I felt like it could be from. And it was like, but just giant and across this trail and um, and then went back under the ground on the other side. Wow. And I'm like, if that root is from that tree, that's really impressive. Like you can tell why they can survive. Yeah. If that's the case because the root was just enormous and. um Plant was yeah, it was just a. I, we didn't see any really big ones. They were all in like that. I didn't see any. I, I guess they can grow up to thirty feet. I didn't see any that tall. Maybe the tallest I saw were like ten to fifteen feet. Wow, which is still, still pretty. Might, big. It's probably yeah. like a hundred plus uh, year old tree. Um, I guess the, it was also saying they can live up to six hundred fifty years old. Yeah, because if and, I remember correctly, Junipers virginiana can live up to nine hundred years old, mm-hmm. and the oldest one I think was in Kentucky, maybe, and it was four hundred and fifty years old. Yeah, so like they're pretty long lived. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was really cool. Now specimen or just that, really cool that specimen in particular, but the whole tree was really interesting. I bet you those trees couldn't survive here because they would get deer browsed before they could ever. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, yeah. they could ever well, survive. I, they, and I was wondering how many deer they had out there. We saw a couple roadkill ones, and I was you. It does not seem to be a very hospitable area for much like. For deer to have to continually browse, I would imagine it's it's difficult. And I would love to see what it looks like in the summer because it's – we went in the winter, so you didn't have any really that I noticed of the perennials that were blooming. But apparently there are some. There's like a monkey flower. There's a penstemon that were native there. Um, But, yeah, it's just like – and they're coming right out of the rock. It's wow. how does this even grow here? But it's uh, they do, and it's awesome. uh, yeah. The all of these plants going back to our native plant discussion, like what is a native plant? They evolve with the ecosystem, and I think you'd be really like there. I'm sure there's invasive plants that could thrive there too, yeah. um, but I think you'd be really hard pressed. You I, you're not planting hydrangea there, no. that's for sure. Um, 
<laughs> or or most yeah. wetland plants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's uh, yeah, it's these plants are highly adapted with the ecosystems they developed in, and um, yeah, it just kind of highlights the importance of that and why we need to preserve that. So very cool. Yeah, very what was cool. your great uh, choice plant this week? So then? I enjoy talking about last week the Washington hawthorn or the uh, Crataegus phenopyrum. And I just wanted to – it made me think of other hawthorns because it's something that we don't sell and we never really talk about. So my plant this week is green hawthorn, which is Crataegus viridis. There is a very popular uh, cultivar among uh, the horticultural trade called winter king. Um, so that's a Crataegus viridis. It's native from Virginia to Florida, west to Texas, and north to Kansas. So it's really the southeast uh, I got this information from wildflower.org, but it's a deciduous tree growing as tall as 50 foot but often shorter. Although it is facultative wet species, it's suitable for most sites and soils. It will grow best in a sunny location. It has white flowers reminiscent of a crabapple blooming uh, or a crabapple, and it blooms from like in the March to May mm-hmm. area. Flowers attract butterflies and bees. The bright orange to red fruit attracts birds and mammals. Wildlife also use the tree for nesting and cover. It's a larval host for the king's hair streak, the gray hair streak, the soapberry hair streak, the banded hair streak, and the red banded hair streak. Highly deer resistant. Um, also, this hawthorn is mostly thornless, and when it does have thorns, it's smaller than the other hawthorns. But it has a like a nice spreading look, a lighter bark color. It's it's and the it is like that orange to red berry almost like a fire thorn mm-hmm. like a um uh why can't i think of the botanical for that but uh it's it's nice that it's a native tree that's southeast and and it's the the berries are plentiful on it mm-hmm. so birds love it uh go crazy when it's when it's burying so I just thought it would be interesting to point out another one again it's it's southeastern united states if you're in that area or if you happen to be in Utah, uh, you know we always talk about the right plant, right place. Maybe one of these would be a good situation for you if you're in those areas. And uh, I would definitely add them if, if you were capable of it. Stay tuned for more of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. How about, I think, are we on to this or that? Yes. Right. Yes, we are. You can get with this, or you can get with that. So last buzz, uh, my article was the one on the oldest forest found in Cairo, New York. Um, Tom's article was, Do Monarchs Need Our Help? Uh, with some science proving that maybe their numbers aren't declined. And we put it up for a vote, and you voted, and the winner is Tom, 15 to 10. So you get to choose if you would like to go first or second this this week. Uh, I will go first. All right. And, Sounds uh, good. Yeah. No, thank you, everyone, for the support last week. We had two really good articles, and I really loved uh, the one picture that Brad Madrinsky sent us of yes. a, uh, a monarch caterpillar on a, I think it was a swamp milkweed plant taken in Cairo, New York. Yeah. So kind of tied Which the was two like a, together. It was a quarry, it was a quarry uh, restoration too, mm-hmm. I think. So perhaps maybe or maybe not that area. But, yeah. Yep. But uh, 
what a way to tie everything together with that photo. Yeah. So uh, I saw. I thought it was kind of lost. I'm like, that's kind of like something out of Lost. Like, and he had never seen it, so it kind of ruined the reference. I, I don't. I don't get it either. You didn't see? Did you see the show? No, lost? I've never seen. All it. right. Yeah. Do you want to explain? Or no, no. no. <laughs> you can just, leave it there. like where everything's connected. Like when he shows the picture. Oh, okay. Like I, just how yeah. everything was connected together, almost yeah, yeah. like there was an alternate. Like alternate force pulling it all together yeah. to tie mm-hmm. it together. I was waiting for him to start uh, giving me lottery numbers. See, you didn't watch the show. No, so yeah. Yeah, so it doesn't. I remember it was like the plane and then there was something in the woods. <laughs> yeah. I was also like, uh, I don't know, what? When did Lost come out? Early 2000s? Early 2000s. I was young enough yeah. I probably shouldn't have been watching it. Probably the 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 pilot episode to me, top five pilot episodes of all time like that the pilot episode of that show is enough to suck you in came out in 2004 right. so i would have been 13 14 something around that age um oh 14 or 15 depending on what it, i don't it, know if it if it uh holds up well like going back i don't know i haven't watched it yeah since. i wouldn't know either Still haven't watched so it. So it was six years, I think, like probably mm-hmm. like from 2004 yeah, to so 2010. Yeah, six seasons, yeah. But anyway, my article this week was titled, uh, Insect Populations Flourish in the Restored Habitats of Solar Energy Facilities. Ooh. And uh, it was published uh, as, uh, what's the name of the organization? It was like Aglazone. It's a- A&L? A, yeah, I'll look it up. Um, it was a, a public- or, Written by Marguerite Hunter or Huber, and uh, came out in on January seventeenth of this year. It's the Argonne or Argoni National Laboratory. Uh, it's argoni.gov or anl.gov is the the URL for it. Um, and yeah, so I'll read some and I'll give some of my thoughts at the end. So bumblebees buzz from flower to flower, stopping for a moment under a clear blue Minnesota sky. Birds chirp and tall grasses blow in the breeze. This isn't a scene from a pristine nature preserve or a national park. It's nestled between uh, photovoltaic solar rays on rehabilitated farmland. Uh, researchers at the U.S. Department of Energy, Argonne National Laboratory, and National Renewable Energy Laboratory wanted to understand the eco- ecological value of PV solar energy sites planted with native grasses and wildflowers. They examined how vegetation would establish and how insect communities would respond to the newly established habitat. The five-year field study looked at two solar sites in southern Minnesota operated by NL Green Power North America. Both sites were built on retired agricultural land. Smart land choices provide multiple, uh, multiple benefits. Global insect biodiversity has been in decline due to habitat loss, pesticides, and climate change. Restoration of insect habitat paired with the smart land use changes uh, toward renewable energy developments could help reverse the course. For instance, as a carbon-neutral source of electricity, expanded PV solar development is critical for, to mitigating climate change, according to the Department of Energy's Solar Future Study. Approximately 10 million acres of land in the U.S. will be, uh, will be needed for large-scale solar development by 2050 in order to meet grid decarbonization and climate change goals. But some lands are better suited for PV solar development than others. Disturbed lands such as former agricultural fields are ideal locations to hold rows of solar panels compared to lands that have been previously undisturbed. Even more strategies can be added uh, to this winning combination to support insect conservation. Agrivoltaics is a combination of solar energy production with agricultural and vegetation management practices. One type of agrivoltaics 
focus on establishment of habitat for insects, pollinators, and other wildlife that can provide important ecosystem services, such as pollination. Pairing solar energy facilities on previously disturbed uh, lands with habitat enhancement sounds like a logical win-win strategy to address energy and biodiversity challenges. To date, however, there has been little field data uh, available to document the feasibility and the ecological benefits to this novel land-use approach. Uh, If you build it, will they come? Uh, Who asked that in that movie? Was it... um, It it wasn't Kevin Costner. It's the voice. The voice. It's the voice. In the okay. book, it's it's a it's like an annou- a sports yeah. announcer, but in the movie, it's just a voice okay. from beyond. Gotcha, gotcha. I couldn't remember uh, James, James Earl Jones was in that movie. He right? is in yeah. that. Yeah, I wasn't sure if he said it. No, it's it's that a voice. Been the voice speaks right? to both Kevin Costner and him. That would yeah. be imp- if he was yeah. doing it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like from Boston to Iowa. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you build it. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, the two studied solar sites were. Uh, I, I'm going back to if you build it, they will come. Um, that phrase, I, I find it to be, uh, so overused in our, it's, it's very applicable it in, is. to native plants and pollinators, but I find it so overused. And it's funny because it, I've, I've also seen as soon as you get like those new converts, they say it too. Like, and they say, it, and it's like, they feel like it's something they came up with and created. And it's like you hear it ne- like now, and there's people like who just got in native plants said, "Yeah, if you build it, they will come." Are you banning the use of that phrase? Are you striking? Yeah, if that it was from, something ooh, that that would be a Tom's Petty. If <laughs> it's like stop saying this, you are not the one who came up with it. You belong among the wildflowers. <laughs> it's it's definitely true. It is one hundred percent true, but uh, it is no, it is no longer creative. Doesn't really it's, phase me. I don't know that it's applicable. Does not mean that we should keep saying it. It's uh, find a find a new slant, find a new way to <laughs> say plant native plants, and the pollinators will will show up in your yard. <laughs> I get oh, annoyed by little things right. like that sometimes. All right, so here's everyone's homework. I want you to come up with one <laughs> other movie phrase or quote yeah. that can replace "If you build it, they will come." Isn't that? It's isn't, really if you build it, he will come. Is yeah. the was the phrase? But oh, okay, yeah. you you have to come up with another movie phrase to represent that if yeah. you plant native plants, pollinators will be present. Uh, extra points if it's like a, a Pixar or Dreams work <laughs> animated comedy. I was gonna <laughs> say if it's got, if it's. If it's from like Eastbound and Down or oh, yeah, yeah. or any I've, Will Ferrell movie, you get extra. What's Shrek say about the swamp? Well, that's that might, uh, that's less welcoming than, <laughs> than this phrase. Anyway, back to the article. Uh, the two studied solar sites were planted with native grasses and flowering plants in early 2018. From August 2018 through August uh, 2022, the researchers conduct, uh, conducted 350 observational surveys for flowering vegetation and insect communities. They valued changes in plant and insect abundance and diversity with each visit. The effort to obtain these data, or this data was considerable. Uh, returning to each site four times per summer to record pollinator counts, said Heidi Hartman, manager of the Land Resources and Energy Policy Program in Argonne's Environmental Sciences Division, and one of the study's co-authors. Over time, we saw the numbers and types of flowering plants increase as the hab- habitat matured. Measuring the corresponding positive impact for pollinators was very gratifying. 
By the end of the field campaign, the team observed increases for all habitat and biodiversity metrics. There was an increase in native plant species diversity and flower abundance. In addition, the team observed increases in abundance and, bio- and diversity of native insect pollinators and agriculturally beneficial insects, which included honeybees, native bees, wasps, hornets, hoverflies, other flies, moths, butterflies, and beetles. Flowers and flowering plant species increased as well. Total insect abundance tripled while native bees showed a 20-fold increase in numbers. The most numerous insect, insect groups observed were beetles, flies, and moths. In a in an added benefit, the researchers found that pollinators from the solar site also visited soybean flowers in adjacent crop fields, providing additional pollination services. The benefits of solar pollination habitats. This research highlights the relatively rapid in- insect community response to habitat restoration at solar energy sites. Sidley Walston, an Argonne landscape ecologist and environmental scientist who was lead author of the study. It demonstrates that if properly cited, habitat-friendly solar energy can be a feasible way to safeguard insect populations and can improve the pollination services in adjacent agricultural fields. Walston also serves as the head of ecology, natural resources, and managed systems department in Argonne's Environmental Science Division. The research findings suggest two important implications of habitat-friendly solar energy. One is that habitat-friendly solar sites can play an important role in in conserving biodiversity. Large amounts of ground-mounted solar is expected to be developed in the future, but if properly sited, habitat-friendly solar can offset the losses of natural areas to provide biodiversity benefits. Second, habitat-friendly solar sites can help mitigate land-use conflicts associated with the con- con- uh, conversion of farmland for solar energy production, as uh, approximately 80% of future ground-mounted solar development could occur on agricultural lands, the proper siting of habitat-friendly solar energy on marginal farmland could not only preserve prime farmland, but it could make prime farmland more productive through pollination services provided by habitat-friendly solar energy. Overall, additional research is needed to understand the feasibility of habitat-friendly solar across different regions and to meet different ecological goals, such as conserving a target insect or wildlife species. Funding was provided by the INSPIRE project through the Department of Energy Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy's Solar Energy Technologies Office. So, yeah, really, really interesting topic. Something that, as... Someone in the agricultural space, I don't like seeing solar taking over uh, viable farmland. That, which that was I kind going of, to be my comment. They kind of put stuff in here saying, um, saying it was like rehabilitated farmland or or retired farmland. Which a lot of the f- projects I've seen in our neck of the woods, that's not been the case. Yeah. Um, it's still what I would call prime farmland. And, and Farm Bureau in New Jersey has a whole thing saying we want to preserve prime farmland, put solar somewhere else. Yeah. And um, But I was, and this was something I was thinking about before I saw the article. And, and I feel like someone sent this to me. And if they did, forgive me for not uh, giving you the, <laughs> the credit for sending it. But I couldn't find who would have sent it. Um, but... Farmland doesn't farmland today doesn't have as much ecosystem benefits as it once did. When we used to farm dirty, air quotes around dirty, um, you had tons of wildlife benefit because you had hedgerows for for birds and, and all that kind of stuff to live in and you had all kinds of insects and, and milkweeds were growing up through it. And we've gotten so efficient with farming, we've taken away a lot of those ecosystem services. Now you still have some soil stability stuff and um, and uh, and uh, I'm trying to think of the word. Um, 
planes are producing oxygen. There's there's are benefits there. Uh, it's definitely better than impervious surface. But I could see if you really were to measure the benefits of today's farmland versus acre for acre uh, versus habitat friendly solar or wildlife friendly solar. I could see the solar field coming out on top as far as like total that you have way more inputs uh, into the solar, solar field um, making those panels comes at a cost. Um, But you're Um, giving back more in the whole process too than a farm field would. Yeah. I like I'm torn because yeah, like we've talked about it before. Like I'd rather see solar on top of buildings like yeah. solar should have to be on top of every new warehouse it's built. But you're probably getting more pollinator function off of that property having it be solar fields. If it's done mm-hmm. this way, most of what we've seen has been nothing but turf grass locally. I haven't seen any that were done with pollinator species or uh, – like for the most part, everything locally to here has been turf grass. So mm-hmm. it's it's not really serving any purpose. But if you can do it right and – and take old farmland that's now providing a good pollinator or wildlife service, like that's a plus. Like if it's done right, this is things. I just don't want that being used as a reason to put solar on ground, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. I'm just torn. Like it's – yeah, I I don't know. But it's it's the lesser of evils, Mm -hmm. and it's not even an evil. I'm just saying it's – you're you're getting the solar energy. You're getting wildlife and pollinator yeah. habitat where it could just be farm, which is feeding people, mm-hmm. or it could just be re- rehabilitated. Yeah, nature. Yeah, you know, which would be ideal. But I oh, guess yeah. we're not going to get that. One of the one of the things um, that's really interesting. I was in a presentation done by our our one of our local public utilities. And they were telling us someone brought up the idea of like why aren't why aren't we taking over farmland or natural lands to put in solar when we have this bit warehouse boom, put it on the warehouses. And I guess there was two things. Um or or parking lots too. Yeah. There's two things. One was that the cost to build the warehouse with a roof capable of holding the solar panels was three times the cost. But and and so it made the project not viable anymore. I'm then okay I also with, was I'm okay with that. Yeah, then I was also <laughs> told that a lot of these warehouses already have to build it so the roofs could hold solar panels as part of the. Yeah. So I don't know, but this this is the person from our public utility. And then um, the second thing they said is that when a solar field is held by a private entity. It can't feed too much into the the grid. So okay. one, it's okay. You have enough solar panels up there that's going to supply the whole warehouse with its electricity. Anything extra would go back into the grid, and because it it's not managed by a power company, it made it more difficult. Because I guess they have to supply a certain level of power across the grid at all times. Okay. So you, you're in middle of the day, sun's beating down, these panels are cranking, right? 
it's putting all this energy in the grid, and they have to shut down some of these substations, power stations, or there's too much power yeah. on the grid. Gotcha. And then as these things go offline, they have to turn stuff back on so it pumps more power and keeps that as a flat line, right? Um, and uh, Russ, uh, please tell me if I'm saying this right or not when I when you listen to this next week, um, because I this is again just what I'm yeah. I heard and I'm regurgitating. But uh, so when it was a private company, the power companies couldn't afford to pay those private companies out one, and it just made more of a hassle because, like, it was just you had. Some of these big solar fields, it's it can be handled by that group. Gotcha. Like they can put the infrastructure in place to level things out. Yeah. When it's a private company, they aren't doing that. So now it's feeding all this stuff into the grid and then going off. And to say something comes offline or you have a transformer blow, like there's all it just made gotcha. a mess for the public utility. Um, but yeah, I always I'm like, oh, that would that would make logical sense. But yeah, then it's uh, yeah. I like I kind of said before, I'm a little torn because it's uh, I hate to see agriculture come out of production. But this may actually, if you put turn into habitat, if it's just yeah. a solar field with mowed grass, yeah, yeah then it's a no brainer. Yeah. But um, okay, now you're putting habitat on it. Now what I've seen and I really love is you add a third layer and you graze it with sheep, and that's where. Which you can't I, do goats because they eat – they, like, chew yeah. on the wires, I guess. I've seen sheep. They but, go uh, at Princeton University, yeah. actually, on, on the solar field there. They use sheep to – Yeah, and um, and there's people who, like, do, like, traveling bands of sheep, and they'll bring them to these solar fields and have it. So it's pollinator-friendly. You graze it with the sheep a couple times a year. keeps the, the vegetation levels low. It's actually going to help boost yeah. your your productivity, I would think. Um, being grazed, it's going to uh, alter the the meadow landscape, yeah. but it should be make it better, not worse. Um, but and now you have triple benefit because you have I like that sheep for whether it's wool or meat production. You have the habitat for pollinators, and then you're also getting a green energy source. You so. just have to make sure you're using yeah. plants that aren't toxic to sheep. Yeah, and that's yeah. yeah, exactly. I like it. I like a good so, article. Yeah, good it's article. um. Let us know what you think about it. Yes, what so, you think the solution is. <laughs> you have a lot of homework this yeah. episode. Oh yeah. So yeah, my, I was going to say, Fran, what's your article? It's it's a long one, and this was the one that I was torn on whether or not to use it. This article wasn't necessarily the one that was used in our Facebook group, but it's along the same line. So mine is called "After the Dams Restoring the Klamath River Will Take Billions of Native Seeds." This is by Juliet Grable. From opb.org. This is long. Just give me the hook if, if it goes on too long. I think it's three pages, so it may be a little, little on the long side. Restoration contractor resource environmental solutions and area tribes will plant up to 19 billion native seeds as the Klamath dams come out and reservoirs are drained. On the north shore of Iron Gate Reservoir, Frank Henry Jr. jams a heavy metal pole into the ground and twists. Once a hole is excavated, he grabs a stick from a five-gallon bucket Water drips from the small triangle of roots at one end. The stick is Klamath plum. It will eventually grow into a shrubbery tree that forms dense thickets and produces mauve-colored fruits. Henry pats native soil, moist, fluffy, and sticky with clay around the plum plant, then moves on to the next one. I'm digging maybe 12 to 13-inch 
hole with the rock bar, he says. This little one, these little ones that are kind of cluttered together are the ones I'm putting in right now. In February, snow dusts the hill, and aside from the occasional rumble of trucks passing by the reservoir, it's quiet. The air is cool, but the winter sun is warming. Not a bad day to work outside. Henry is part of a crew contracted by Resource Environmental Solutions, or RES, to restore the banks of the Klamath River in the wake of dam removal. Late last year, Pacific Corps transferred ownership of four hydroelectric dams, three in Northern California and one in Southern Oregon, to the Klamath River Renewal Corporation, which is managing the dam removal. Drawdown of the reservoirs is scheduled to begin as early as next January. Iron Gate is a sinuous, skinny reservoir tucked into the folds of the Siskiyou Mountains. Draining it will expose about 900 acres of wet mud. It's our job to make sure it's revegetated. We want we want that to be revegetated with a healthy native plant ecosystem, says Joshua Chenoweth, senior riparian ecologist for the Yurok tribe who is leading the replanting effort. Phase one is to check the march of exotic invasive plants. For the last two years, Chenoweth's crew have been mowing a wide ribbon around the shoreline, carefully working around native plants like silver lupine. Last fall, they seeded the strip with a mix of native grasses and flowering plants. Now they're installing young shrubs and trees. Buckbrush, serviceberry, and Oregon ash along with the Klamath plum. Collectively, these plants will create a wall of green taking up space that would have otherwise been overrun by non-native plants like Medusa head, a grass with sticky seed head that clings heavily to hooves and muddy boots. The Klamath plum starts, starts Henry's planting were grown in a nursery in Central Point, Oregon, from wild seed he helped collect in 2020. Henry, who has been a part of the Chenoweth's crew since 2019, has also done a fair amount of weed eating with the green machine and wrestled with 30-foot Himalayan blackberry vines, clipping, dragging, and piling them for the chipper. All the technicians except for Chenoweth and one other ecologist are all members of the Yurok tribe, like Henry or Karuk, and most have been there on the crew for several years. Any revegetation project, if it's done right, is adaptively managed by people that understand the landscape. There's no better place to look for than that the tribes and people that live here and call it home, says Chenoweth. The revegetation of the Klamath River has been called the largest river restoration project in American history. Collecting, propagating, and growing enough seeds and plants to populate the reservoir footprints, approximately 2,200 acres in all, is a staggering task. RES launched the effort in 2019, recruiting and training crews from area tribes to collect seed and prepare the ground and partnering with commercial nurseries to propagate plants and seed. Their planting design includes 96 different species, culturally significant plants like yampa and lomatium, important pollinator species like milkweed, and tens of thousands of oak trees. In total, RES aims to plant 250,000 trees and shrubs, 40,000 to 60,000 pounds of seed, enough to re- enough to plant the reservoirs twice. We're up to 13 billion seeds approximately, says Gwen Santos, regulatory and ecology director for RES. We're trying to get 17 billion to 19 billion. There's no way to collect enough wild seed to meet these targets, so RES had contracted with five commercial nurseries to propagate wild plants specifically for their seed, a process called seed amplification. You basically take advantage of nature, says Santos. You start with one seed and get a whole plant and produce 10 times the seed you started out with. There's a bit of practical magic involved in transforming a handful of wild seeds into hundreds of pounds, says Matt Benson, manager and farmer at Washington-based BFI Native Seeds, one of the contracted nurseries. There's 6,000 years of agriculture behind every seed I plant when I put a garden in or when a farmer plants a field, he says. We don't have any of that. The challenges start with getting wild seed to even sprout. Some must be cold stratified, exposed to a period of freezing before they will germinate. 
Once the plants are growing, Benson must figure out how to coax them into producing abundant fertile seed for uh, seed heads. A lot of plants are very happy just to make leaves, says Benson. When things are great, I can be a big bushy green plant and not worry about seed production. Often he uses water stress to trigger plants to flower and fruit, which in the dry Columbia basins is easy to manipulate with irrigation water. I'm just looking to see how much I have left. Uh, BFI, which is located near Moses Lake in central Washington, has devoted about 40, 40 of their 2,000 acres to the Klamath Project. Benson is growing 20 different native species, some of which have yielded surprises. A field of mugwort started out as tiny tufts with gray-green leaves. And one year it shot up almost like corn does, says Benson. He had to keep raising his sprinklers to accommodate the plant, which eventually towered over 10 feet and produced huge, huge masses of flowers. Benson appreciates that RES understood the importance of starting early, well before dam removal was actually take, uh, going to take place. Three years, which is barely enough time, he says, having the right plants at the right time will have a huge impact on the final success of the project. Uh, that will be restored while Klamath look like – imagine it. Uh, sorry. I, I When I uh, pasted, I missed a little bit. Imagine it. Stand at the Wanaka Springs boat launch and picture Iron Gate Reservoir drained. The river has found its channel at the base of its original canyon. Willows flank the banks. Much of the reservoir footprint is flush with upland vegetation. Oak copses, thickets of buckbrush, and klamath plum blooming ripe, blooming rose and lupine. If your imagination needs a jumpstart, Google images of Washington State's Elwell River circa 2014 and several years hence. Between 2011 and, a 20, and 2014, two dams were removed from near the mouth of the river, which flows from the Olympic Mountains to the Strait of Juan de Fuca near the U.S.-Canada border. At the time, it was the largest dam removal in the world. The reservoirs were drawn down slowly, exposing a wasteland of mud littered with tree stumps. Within years, thanks to a combination of deliberate planting and natural repopulation, alder and cottonwood trees lined the new riverbanks, and lupines, berries, roses, and a host of other plants filled the bare spots. Chenoweth helped lead the reservation efforts at the Elwha and had settled with his family in Port Angeles with every intention of watching the landscape evolve. After the Yurok tribe toured the Elwha site, they began recruiting him for the Klamath River project. The pull to lead another revegetation effort on even a larger scale proved too hard to resist, says Chenoweth. Here was a whole new landscape to learn about and try to apply lessons learned to a new project and advance the science of revegetating reservoirs after a dam removal project. Though the Elwa is the obvious analog to the Klamath, both are large dam removal projects in the Pacific Northwest. Chenoweth predicts major differences in how the vegetation responds. For one, the climates are vastly different. In the cool, wet Olympic Peninsula environment, plants in the fine, silty soils took off immediately. In the warmer, drier Klamath Basin climate, Chenoweth will take a more aggressive approach, planting and seeding as much as possible as soon as possible so plants can draw from the residual moisture in the soil. While the Elwa originates... In the relatively pristine ecosystem within Olympic National Park, the Klamath flows from a basin highly altered by irrigation and agriculture. The pressure from invasive species is greater here. The composition of native plants surrounding the reservoir is different. At Iron Gate, for example, most of the native upland trees are oaks and junipers. An acorn is not going to fly 300 feet in the air like a red alder seed in the Elwa, says Chenoweth. Sticky, seeded exotics like Medusa Head, on the other hand, will have no trouble finding their way to bare mud. Chenoweth wants his crews in place, plants in the seed in hand. The moment the water levels and the reservoirs begin to recede. For this reason, he's scaling up to 12 to 15 technicians this year. He hopes to recruit from several area tribes, including the Yurok, the Kairuk, Hoopa, and Klamath tribes. 
This pioneer seeding will include a mix of native grasses and forbs that germinate readily and spread rapidly. Later in the year, they will add new species, including wild collected seed, to create more complexity and diversity. An important part of their strategy is mimicking how plants naturally grow amongst each other and under natural circumstances. If the plants are in a community rather than in a monoculture, they could share resources and outcompete the invasive plants, says Santos. Planting groups of plants in these facilitation patches, a strategy imported from the Elwa project, will also help accelerate their growth. Despite the monumental effort, nature will do most of the work. Following two years of active planting, RES will maintain and monitor the sites for five years, adapting their strategies as needed. We're trying to introduce as great a diversity as possible, then let the landscape teach us what's going to grow and work well, says Chenoworth. So that's it. That's um, I. I just love. You know, any successful project needs stewardship, mm-hmm. and and they're they're incorporating the people of the land that call that land home to help them steward yeah. it, which makes a story special. I also appreciate that they started early, and in our business, we don't always get to see that planning where you're getting mm-hmm. given enough time yeah. to be successful. Yeah. So it sounds like they're doing everything they can to be successful. They're starting with what they know they could put in there to cover the ground, keep invasives out, and then work biodiversity mm-hmm. in. So it's they're almost like including succession into that yeah. that project, which it it's just a very heartwarming project and I I hope it has all mm-hmm. the success that they're hoping. It sounds you know, we're familiar with RES from who we deal with here in the East Coast and uh it's it just seems like such a wonderful project. It almost makes me wish I was out there planting to, oh, be, yeah. to, to say you yeah. could be a part of it. Like I'm actually jealous that it's not happening on, on this coast. Yeah, this is um like a, a major, major undertaking. I forget how many – you might even said in the article how many stages it is yeah. to, to get through. And um, But yeah, they got a lot of different stakeholders to come in to talk about it and just about everything I've heard about it or read about it has nearly everyone on board. Um, there was, uh, this was, uh, oh man, this was a couple of weeks ago now, but, um, when, uh, Jeff Gall was on, oh, for, and, cause I was looking yeah, up the damn Klamath, show. The Klamath, uh, the Klamath stuff. There was, news articles about it and then there's comments under the news article and you had a couple i think like citizens that were questioning well, one person was saying that they're like they couldn't believe that their power bill like if this made their power bill go up they were like <laughs> and the there's one person in particular responding to the, the negative uh comments and um it was fairly humorous yes. but uh i doubt that the person who wrote the comment felt that way yeah it was um, some of those yeah. comments were, I I would be horrified if those comments showed up in our Facebook group. Oh yeah, but it was funny reading. <laughs> yeah. It was funny reading them from afar. Yeah, but um, but but I also if going to our Facebook group, I don't think we'd have that original question no, either. I, like, I, oh, I is my so. when the article says how the the dam was decommissioned like twenty years ago? Or, oh, was my power bill going to go Listen, up? Like, you would be completely shocked at what I decline. For comments going in the Facebook, group. yeah, oh yeah, like some of them. All right, I'll share what it was, and I declined because it was from a group, mm-hmm. but it was 
Brad's post on Taylor Swift. Oh yeah, uh, whispering into uh, Travis Kelsey's mm-hmm. ear. Can we plant some native plants yeah. in our front yard? And someone posted a prairie with trees in it, saying, "Be careful what you wish for." Here's trees, native trees taking over our native prairies. And I'm like, well, that has nothing to do with this conversation yeah. at all. And we've talked about this on the podcast at Right Plant, Right Place. Yeah. Like you wouldn't yeah. tell someone to plant junipers virginiana in a, in a prairie in Kansas. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was just like I didn't allow it because I'm like it's really not adhering to anything. Wow. I'm just starting trouble. This is all – Flies in the face of Elon Musk, friend. <laughs> what, do you, what do you have to say about freedom of speech? <laughs> I'm not for it. <laughs> I'm against it. I'm, I, People should be allowed to say things as dumb or fake as they want. As long but as that was just someone God. that knew. Yeah, I felt I, like I knew a little bit that was just trying to say, I know something about native plants, and here you go. Yeah, and I just felt um, like it was an argument starter. It wasn't constructive yeah, comments. Yeah. It's a uh, – I will – we talked about Brad a little earlier, but I will um, I will comment on him again. Putting up that post, he was the bigger man in that he he, he had every right to to hate Travis Kelsey <laughs> and hate Taylor Swift for what they did to his Bills. Uh, or really, uh, yeah. if we're being really honest, yeah. what the Bills did to it, themselves. Yes. but um, but yeah, he was the bigger man, and, he was the and really man. He took it on the him. chin and and was able to put up that and the other reasonably funny meme of. <laughs> Talking about native plants. The other, you know, and the other comment, and I had told you about this one. Someone had commented on Spotify on the mosquito control episode. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That that, was... Oh well, I'm a mosquito control company, and just think how bad the problem would be if I didn't spray. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you didn't listen to the podcast at all yeah. because yeah. we're telling you what would happen if if you didn't spray. But those are the kind of things I save the argument. Because I'm like, this is someone that's just kind of trolling a little bit, and, yeah. And just so it it does happen. I just don't allow it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so just remember that when you're when you're commenting, <laughs> Fran is over here just uh, being moderating supreme, everything. Supreme God of trying the to influence group. elections is. <laughs> it it happens. It happens. But no, it's but it's just nice to see. What's going into this river being restored mm-hmm. yeah. to yeah. what it once was? And I'm really looking forward to these follow-up stories 10 years from now of what has happened since the dams have been removed. And that's what I'm I'm really looking forward to, how that land is responding mm-hmm. and, and what they've seen. Um, so I think there are two great articles. Just look – wow, we've – we, We've we been going a, for we, a while. We still we have a lot, lot to go. Yeah. Uh, two fantastic articles. So Tom is Tom's is on the. I'm sorry. I just uh, scrolled by yours. Tom's is on insect populations flourishing in restored habitats and solar energy facilities. Mine is uh, about the amount of seeds and the restoration uh, after the dams restoring the Klamath River. We'll take billions of native seeds. We'll post this on Monday and. You have to make sure you go to the Facebook group and join and vote because. And of course, the choice is yours. All right. This is this may be the longest seg- segment of the uh, podcast. Oh, yeah. I am going to uh, kick us off into listener shout outs. Listener, listener, shout out, shout out, shout out. I'm, I'm going to go first with my singular 
<laughs> my singular shout out. So uh, I just wanted to thank Jim Fuermeyer. Uh He uh, reached out to me, DM me on on Facebook just to uh, say some kind words about the Meet Franchismar episode, and I really appreciated it. So thank you so much for uh, taking time to write, and uh, I really – what you said meant a lot. So thank you very much. Yeah, All and right. um, I'll, start, I'll start with uh, the folks who – who did it the old-fashioned yes. way. Um, <laughs> left reviews for us because uh, we do appreciate all those reviews and comments. And uh, the first one was actually a return review yes. uh, from Registration Failed. And uh, <laughs> they they also said five stars on the Meet Fran uh, episode. Um, and they were actually one of our book winners yeah. from when we gave away the Camille Dungey book. Um, and, yeah, she just thought the episode was really enjoyable and – uh, and thought it was interesting how people get into the horticultural business. So, and and hopefully it will inspire others. Yeah. So I hope so too. Yep. And that was yeah. I think it it didn't necessarily go as planned. No. Thanks, Fran. Was, <laughs> <laughs> I think I said it before. It was supposed to be kind of like jovial and lighthearted, and then it turned into. But I think it was really good at the yeah. same time. Um. And uh, yeah, I think people will be inspired to to explore their dreams. After that. And um, then we had Eric Fleming on Spotify wrote that they love the show and listen regularly and finally figured out how to leave a comment on there. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much. Leave more. <laughs> and um, then now comes the long list of, of folks uh, that I've saw in person over the last week and change. And uh, so starting with some of the folks at Planorama, there was uh, Agnes, Catherine, Carolyn, uh, Todd Heyman again. Um Todd, we, we love what you're doing out there, and uh, keep saying hello whenever we see you. Uh, there was Gary. I met Kevin Moriarty, who is a, oh, a, yes. a Native Plants, Healthy Planet Facebook group celebrity. Top contributor. Yeah, yeah, huge contributor. Puts up a lot of really, really interesting stuff, doing some fantastic Native gardening out on Staten Island. So it was nice he, to meet him in person. that uh like – I, I ruined it a little bit by not being there. I yeah. think I'm going to become yeah. a recluse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make it real difficult to complete the, the set. Yeah, then um, we had uh, Sam Anderson was there as well. And then I also talked to uh, Janet uh, Jackwin, and she didn't think I was going to be able to say her last name correctly, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure I got it right. We After, shall we see. Practiced, we practiced in person. Um <laughs> So no, it was really nice to meet all of you and, and get to say hello. And um, it's as the recipient of oh, actually I have more. There was a, I ran Todd Bradbury and then Rick McCoy at Total Pro uh, Expo did, as well. And I want to say there's someone else, but I did you I say Sam Anderson? Done. I did. Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah, but um, no, it's uh it's very flattering when people come up and say hello and and that they listen. And it's funny because some people you can tell are a little bit nervous, but I like. In a sense, we get equally nervous when we hear it because it's like it's humbling that I, I bring it up a bunch. We're literally sitting here, just the two of us, face to face at opposite ends of if almost like those movie scenes of like the the couple that's like having hard times and they live in the big house <laughs> with a long table and we're opposite ends of the table. It's not quite yeah. as long as in the movies. We're getting along. Yeah. Uh, we aren't fighting <laughs> at the moment, but um, it's kind of set up like that. And then, yeah, you kind of forget that there's I ne- thousands of people that are listening to this. I always, it's, I love hearing it, but I never expect to hear it. Every time uh, I hear it, I'm surprised yeah. that, hey, I'm a listener, especially at like those kinds of things. Um, 
like yeah. industry events. I don't know. It just is is very not shocking, but surprising and yeah. humbling. Yeah, it's very humbling. Um is like one of those things where you kind of like put down your head and kick your foot. Like, oh, shucks. <laughs> oh, <laughs> gee, Wilkers. <laughs> oh, but, man. <laughs> uh, and if you really want to hear us talk about the podcast more, we will. Yeah. Um, but I. We I tend know. not to lead with that foot. Yeah. Like, but if you, yeah. if you prompt that, like at Mance, I had someone basically interviewing me. I was more than happy to, yeah. to answer. Someone all, else I ran into questions. at Planorama. And um, it was, it was one of my moments where I was on the receiving end is the guy uh, Thomas Christopher from Growing Greener. Oh, yeah. Um, the Growing Greener podcast. And I knew it as soon as he started talking. He came up to me to, like, ask me if I would go on Growing oh, Greener. Oh, awesome. And, um, and I, but as soon as he started talking, I'm like, I know who you are. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then I had to, like, I, I had to say, oh, yeah, no, I listen to you guys. Uh, not a lot, but every once in a while. Yeah. And, um, and, no, I was honored that he'd think about oh, including awesome. us because I wanted to talk to him anyway. So That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Very so cool. I don't know if he's listened to this now. He hadn't listened to us beforehand. Oh, but I what? Know, I know, right? Forget it. <laughs> you can't go on. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's uh, we do really appreciate it. So if you see us out, don't be afraid to say hello. We're just Please people. Yeah. Just two lonely people sitting at a lonely long table. And uh, it's nice to know that there's... People we, sitting around the rest of the table in spirit. When, when we turn off the microphones, we just sit quiet. <laughs> While you hear the clink of a fork. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's do um, – we have a little twist. Grow me a book. I like books. This is typically a Tom segment, but since I've been reading again – I actually have a book to read um, or not to read to talk about. So at the time I'm saying this right now, the book had not been released, uh, but it's getting released on February 6th. So by the time this comes out, the book will have been released and you can get a copy of it. We were fortunate enough to be contacted and get a, a pre-release. And the book is called Earth and Soul by Leah Rampey. And I was trying to put it in a way that 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 most of our listeners can understand the stance I'm taking. A very good book, very good book. But I thought to describe it, I felt it was a very – like a perfect companion book to A New Garden Ethic by Benjamin Vogt, which Benjamin in that first book, it's, it's a very dense read on all the psychological reasons that – you should plant native plants and why native plants are important and why you should do it. Where I feel Leah's book is a more soul-searching read through why you need to do this for the purpose of your own and everyone else's personal growth and health and mental stability. So it's it's more like a, a soul-searching type book. And all the reasons why. And it's kind of laid out in a similar fashion. And as you read, a lot of the references Leah uses are all books and authors that we've had on the podcast or, or have talked about. Like she references Robin Wall Kimmerer. Or she references uh, Doug Tallamy and a lot of other more spiritual uh, uh, authors and, and people. But Leah, who runs um, Pilgrimage is on her own thing, kind of takes you on a pilgrimage through – these uncertain times. So it's it really takes a, a deep look at our distant con, uh, disconnection 
with uh, nature during these times of natural loss and climate change and how this disconnect affects our health and well-being. It provides an understanding as to why we've changed our landscape over the centuries since European settlement and and gives us a roadmap to reconnect. It, it explains that there's kind of – there's no going back shoes as a tale uh, about a woven tapestry, uh, but we have the opportunity to weave something new. Um, so through this, like having led many pilgrimages, Leah offer exercises in reconnection, encouraging the art of finding deeper connections with nature. Um and to be part of the not part of the community that we call Earth, not above it. Um, and I thought it was the the perfect book to just kind of make you stop, think, and feel. Um, she she mentions that we're living in edge times, and it's the ecotone of change, at, which are drastic times. And how do you move forward from that? So it was really just a book to get you to think about what is my place in this universe. <laughs> And in nature and these times and how with climate change and, and having concern, how it affect, you know, gives us anxiety moving forward or what the future holds for us or our family. So mm-hmm. it's just a way of like really taking a step back, looking and reconnecting and, and making a change. Yeah. Now, the, the, the issue is you didn't have to sell me on this. <laughs> it's hopefully this book can reach people that – do need to be sold mm-hmm. on that, and they they read it and like I think like me reading it, it's preaching to the choir. I, I'm hoping it reads an audience that if you can get someone that doesn't feel that way to read this book, it would make for a good change and have them adopt some of it or just think about it. Um, but it's a fantastic book. I'm going to share it with Tom so mm-hmm. that he can read it afterwards. And uh, I just have a few pages left. It was just about done, yeah. so I, yeah. I'll probably have it. Oh, tomorrow. awesome. So it was just we really appreciate the opportunity to read it. I would recommend if you get a chance, if it sounds like something you would enjoy, go out and pick a copy of it up. It's called Earth and Soul by Leah Rampey, and it was just released on February 6th. So get a copy, and it's not a it's not a, a, a long read, and there's a lot of exercises in mm-hmm. it to give you to do to think. And uh, it's just a really good book to make you stop and scratch your head and – like I hadn't considered it this way mm-hmm. or I find myself stopping a lot on this one Yeah, just yep. to kind of like take it in and just let it absorb it and think about it for a little bit before. But it's kind of broken down not only in chap- chapters but sections so mm-hmm. you can read like two or three pages and stop and let it yeah. kind of like yep. sink in. So. Yeah, cool. No, I can't wait to, to dig into myself. Awesome. So. Awesome. Can't wait to get it to you. So we're down. I, you know, I wrote a take it or leave it and I'm, I'm questioning if I'd given you this before. I feel like we did. I think it might have been early on, but just fertilizer in general. Mm -hmm. Do we need fertilizer? Is that important for 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 planting native plants? Are we are we providing something that isn't necessary to plants? Especially if you're if you're considering Mm -hmm. right plant, right place. Like say you're you have a little blue stem and you're planting it in a upland soil that's yeah, right place no. of nutrients. I think it's know. yeah. It depends. It's um, it depends on your weed pressure, invasive plant pressure. Because uh, sometimes, and that goes two ways. Because one, it can give your plant a little jolt to get ahead of that. But two, it can also feed the the stuff you're not trying to feed. Yes, at the same time. Um, and there's a lot of different fertilizers with a lot oh, of yeah. different 
yeah. um, rates or, yeah. you, you know, it's really – there's hundreds of choices mm-hmm. of what you can use and what the results are. Yeah. So yeah. there's a lot to look into. It's not as easy as just grabbing a bag mm-hmm. and going out there and throwing fertilizer down. Yeah. If you're uh, if you're doing it in the right place, no, I don't think you need it. It's when you're trying to force something that probably isn't like a hundred percent fit. Um, probably even like seventy five percent fit is where you. Hey, I think that's where you'd want it. But then at the same time, it's like, oh, if you're forcing maybe you shouldn't it, shouldn't be planning, be planning there, that. Yeah. yeah. So, so, but it's also something that's pretty standard in the industry. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. because it's it's about turns and and getting mm-hmm. plants ready so you can get more plants out the door yeah like in a good way like because yep. the more plants you get out the door the more good you can do yeah so if if you were to come into work tomorrow and they say fertilizer's banned mm-hmm. would it upset you no okay you'd be like okay yeah i think it's if you have like the, is it a crutch you think do you think we depend on it oh as yeah. an industry yeah, yeah. as in as in the nursery industry i think it's definitely a crutch and it's something where you're able to get away with more because you can yeah. force these nutrients on your plants. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's things that kind of happen in nature anyway. Like yeah. if a plant could be getting nutrients yeah. from leaf litter or mm-hmm. things like yep. this, like in a way that it, it happens in a community. Yeah. We're yeah. just, and the way we're doing it isn't natural. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's yeah. needed to. It's if you can, I'm, and I'm even a big proponent of this. With uh, when growing plants in containers, is if you can have the right cultural pla- practices, you don't need a lot of other inputs. It's when your your cultural practices are off a little bit, and it it takes a long time to figure some of this stuff out. Well, but you're too wet, you're too well, too well, wet more than too dry. You're growing things that are in a way that they don't prefer. That's when you need your all, all your chemistry. Well, let me put it this way: for a nursery conditions potting soil is not going to have the same nutrients or mycorrhizae that Mm -hmm. you would have in a forest floor yeah so is it better that we do that to give it the nutrients that it's lacking because of the potting because it's not a Mm -hmm. a native soil yeah well I i think that's why you have to yeah um and it's not even just the that the nutrients are absent because sometimes they aren't it's that the the holding capacity or the availability so different substrates will have different holding capacities and then also have different um you may have substrates that have really high holding capacities but they don't give it up freely yeah. I, I i'm trying to think of one off the top of my you head you can't access like, it's not that's one of the reasons yeah. that peat moss is so popular because it has one it can hold a lot of water and the nutrients that are in the water um but then it also gives up that water to the plant pretty easily where there's other substrates where they can hold a lot of water, but they won't give it up as easily. So, uh, and then there's substrates that just don't hold any water, and then therefore cannot hold the nutrient load too. So, um, yeah, it's all like cation exchange capacity. And this is someone with a business degree saying this. So I did not no, study a lot of this no, stuff, but other than talking to really smart people and and doing some. Uh, Internet research. We've said it all the time that a, a nursery is not a natural environment. No, I, that no. The same person that was asking me about bringing plants over the Bering Land Bridge said, "All right, so what's native to a city?" Yeah, you know, and I go, "Well, a city's not a natural environment." Yeah, so you're, you're, we're talking about two different things. Mm-hmm. Like, 
So, and I think yeah. a nursery is not a natural environment. So yeah. you can't use the same practices because it's not a natural environment. You have to alter things. But I'm just, I always look at that one ingredient just across the board for all nurseries or even plant. I don't use any fertilizer when I plant at my, my house. Yeah, I don't I, either. I, uh, with my, I should say with my, um, like vegetable garden, I will. Okay. That, but not that's my, a little different, yeah. you know, but, if, but as far as planting plants in the landscape, I have never used a fertilizer. Now, some things you need to use fertilizer because it's the wrong plant for that, <laughs> for that mm-hmm. property. But if you're, I really believe you're, if you're using the right plant for the right place, mm-hmm. you should be able to get away with yep. with that. And I'm sure there's organic practices, there's chemical yeah. practices, there, there's all different ways you can look at it. But, um, so would you? Are you taking it or are you leafing yeah, I'm, it? I'm taking you're it. Taking it. Yeah. For the, I, I, I don't think, think it's, it's a, a harmful thing. Um, I think it's hard to leaf yeah. it altogether. I think yeah. depending on the situation. That there may be sometimes where I'm leafing it, mm-hmm. like my own property. But yep. overall, I I think it would be hard yeah. to yeah. to leaf it all together. I think it's a take mm-hmm. it for me. Yeah, I think you got to work towards not having to need it. Yes, but a lot of places just need it. Yeah, now so yeah. All right, there all right. you go. Yeah, so that's going to wrap us up for today. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Buzz. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants, Healthy Planet, present, uh, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Thank you, RJ Comer, for our Buzz theme music. Make sure you stream or buy RJ's music wherever you consume your music or check out his Americana playlist on Pandora. Dave Bennett, thank you for our Native Plant anthem. Follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, uh, Instagram at Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet, and also YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. We now have a question and comment line, of course. Call us at 215-346-6189. I shall repeat that, 215-346-6189. Ask a question or leave a comment. We'll do our best to play it on a future episode of The Buzz. And again, if I, I know I say it every week. Thank you to everyone in the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. Thank you for being part of our community. And listening to this podcast and having these discussions and helping each other, I appreciate everything that everyone brings to those conversations and how much it's helped our community as a whole. And I can't imagine this podcast would be what it is without that Facebook group. Mm So you can buy Native Plants Healthy Planet merch at our website, www.nativeplantshealthyplant.com. Uh, just click on the link at the top of the page. It will take you to our Teespring store, and we have tons of designs up there. And once again, we don't keep any of the money from that. We uh, All the profits, uh, the the company, the Prince Shirts, they take their portion. Whatever's uh, left from that sales price goes into our PayPal account. And then when that sum gets high enough, we need to say, hey, we're going to give this to somebody who, who deserves it. So uh, we try and find nonprofits that are doing real boots on the ground work where a couple hundred bucks is going to go a long way for them. Um, so and uh, do us a favor, if you haven't already, uh, subscribe to our show where on whatever platform you're listening, leave a five-star review on platforms that you can. If you do a little write-up with that, I give you a shout out on our buzz episodes, uh, like I did today. We so. actually cracked the top 15 in nature. On yeah, Apple. we were 13 and of the, the and we 12 cracked- podcasts that were ahead of us, seven of them were big <laughs> podcasts. So, and we've also cracked the top 150 of science, mm-hmm. which yeah. was, I think, a first yeah. for so us. So, Allie Ward and Sankrit uh, Vendantam, here we come. We're, we're on your we're heels. On your heels. <laughs> <laughs> we got to still hit the first page. Yes, but, uh, but we're getting close. We're getting that's, that, that's the best that we've ever been. Yep. yep. Um, so. 
Do you have yeah. a secret? Uh, the one I'll tell is um, is I tell most of my secrets revolve around my son in some way. Are you going to tell the one you told us the other day? No, it's uh, a, that's a such slightly a great story. different one. That All one's right. well. That's such a great story, Tom. Yeah. Okay, I can tell that one instead. <laughs> I'll save the other one. Um, my, the other one was a little more sentimental, but uh, yeah. So he. He goes to a farm school, which is pretty cool. And um, my wife gets an email of what he does in school for the day. And there was one of his friends from school playing in a whole bunch of, like, bubbles. So my wife is like, oh, did you play with bubbles today? And he's like, no, the class did, but uh, I didn't. And she's like, well, what were you doing? He's like, I was sitting on the bench. <laughs> and the, So she's like, oh, he must have gotten in trouble yeah. or something happened. And she's like, why are you sitting on the bench? And he's like, he says, I was crying and waiting for you to come back. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, wait, what were you doing? He's like, I was crying and waiting. She's like, you were crying and waiting. <laughs> and she, he like kind of crawls up on her lap and gives her a big hug. And then she's like, you were crying. And he says, crying like a baby. I'm a baby. Wow, wow, wow. Change my diaper. <laughs> I don't know where this child came from, but he's got that kind of sense of humor. And, uh, but uh, it, I that was the hardest I laughed in a while he's, as I'm just observing this going on. He's maybe um, has hung out in the office too much. Yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> um, he's a he's got a big personality. and He's a piece of work, and um, yeah, he gives a run for right. money on a, you have your hands a full. daily basis. Yeah, so <laughs> that yeah, that is a a good one. The, what I was gonna say, I won't save it. But he asked me the other day. He asked for a popsicle. At like eight in the morning, <laughs> I'm like, no, it's winter. It's eight in the morning. We're well, maybe later, yeah. but we're not having a popsicle now. And um, a couple minutes go by, and he's like, "What does melt mean?" <laughs> I'm like, "Well, no, like you were gonna have a popsicle. If you didn't eat the popsicle, it starts to melt into a liquid. Or when you have ice cream, the ice cream is hard and solid, and then it melts into a liquid, and that's when it's runny and looks like soup in the bottom of the bowl. And he's like, "Well, what does it mean in the book?" And I'm like. What, what book? And he's like, in the book, it says, you made my heart melt when I kissed you goodnight. And I'm like, oh, that's, uh. a, oh, that's a different <laughs> meaning. That's like, it makes you feel like uh, as a parent when your your child kisses you goodnight for the first time and they're growing up, it makes you feel like mushy yeah. and, and warm, like yeah. when warm and like you melted. And he's so he like just kind of let it go after that. And we put him to bed that night. And um, about 15 minutes go by, and I hear footsteps running down the hall. And he, like, bursts open the door. He says, I'm going to melt you. (laughs) Hops up in our bed and gives me a big kiss, gives my wife a big kiss. And like, all right, now you're going back to bed. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, now he does. He does it not every night, but a lot of nights. Oh, that's awesome. He'll come in and ask if he can melt us and then goes back to bed. I love it. So That's great. Fantastic. The joys of parenthood. Yes. Yes. Fantastic secrets. Those moments um, are what make the crying and screaming and saying they want to go back to the hotel when you're trying to do like a beautiful sunrise hike in Arches National Park worth it. Right. Makes all the crying and waiting (laughs) worth it. (laughs) So, all right. Well, thank you everyone. I am Tom. And I am Fran. Thanks again, everyone coming up uh, next week. We have, uh, I didn't update this, but coming up next week, we're live from Bowman's Hill wildflower preserve land ethics symposium. Yeah. If I remember remember correctly, I believe so. Yeah. 
Well, we're not live. It's pre-recorded, but it will be the episode that will be airing on. And then at some point we have the Canadians will be happy. Yes. So we have the we're we're doing something we, for the Canadians. We so, we aim to please you. I know we promised it like a month and a half ago, but things it, happened, and now it's finally going to happen. It's happening. So, it's yeah. happening. So uh, make sure you tune in and hear those. And until then, keep it native. <laughs>